morning, everyone. Welcome to our Ground Round series. Uh, this is really good to have everyone again. Hopefully you're having a good cup of coffee, uh, enjoying that and getting prepared to learn everything you wanted to know about lipids in, in pediatrics. And we have a, a true expert in the, in the area uh, that will be introduced by Dr. Jermaine Lee in a second. Uh, be, before I begin, though, I, you know, I just want to make sure that, that we acknowledge the, you know, the difficult times that we're going through as a result of, of COVID-19. Uh, this has been going on now for several months. We have done really well in Connecticut with the very few cases through the summer, but now it's picking up again. And it is part of that second wave that, that's coming in and the, all the predictions will tell you, uh, and I believe them, that sometime in December we'll be peaking again with uh, several thousand cases a day. Uh, so we have to be prepared. Uh, the hospitals uh, across the region are beginning to see an uptick in cases. I spoke to my colleagues at John Dempsey Hospital, University Hospital, and they have up to six cases now. Uh, also, I spoke to Adam Steinberg at Hartford Hospital, and they've also increased the number of cases. They've seen more than they've seen in, in about three months. So uh, it, it, is, uh, it is a time that we have to be real careful. Uh, and, and the best way to do that for all of us is to remain socially distant and make sure you avoid those large gatherings and use this vaccine. This is probably the best vaccine that we have right now until something else is available. And um, I, I'm always reminded about the, the personal toll that this takes on people. And uh, again, I'm, I'll, I'll share a story with you just to, just to highlight how important it is to be careful and, and uh, that we, we need to take care of each other. Uh, Dr. Mocha, one of our pediatric uh, gastroenterologists, had to fly uh, emergently to India uh, over the weekend. Uh, his uh, father became ill with COVID-19, and unfortunately, he passed away on Saturday. Uh, Dr. Mocha's father, Dr. Mocha, uh, was a physician taking care of patients in India. He's, a, he's an adult nephrologist, and as a result of taking care of patients, became ill, uh, very rapidly progressed, and he passed away. Uh, so, uh, obviously, our, our thoughts and prayers are with, with Jasmine. We, I connected with him last night. Uh, it, it is a very tough time for the family. Uh, his wife is here in Connecticut with their 13-month-old child, and they're doing well. And I'll be able to provide information to you if you want to uh, show your respects. Uh, so before I start, I just want to take a, a moment of silence in, in recognition of Dr. Mocha uh, and, you know, his father and, and all of those that we have known that have passed away as a result of COVID-19. Thank you. Now, uh, on a more positive note, I, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Jermaine Lee to introduce Sunitha, Dr. Sura, who uh, uh, I've known since she was a fellow. And um, I have great stories with Sunitha that I'm not going to tell you right now, but someday I will. Uh, she was really one of, one of the most amazing recruits that we brought into Connecticut Children's, and she's proven that in, in every and so many ways. And I think Dr. Jermaine Lee will tell you. Uh, but before we do that, Emily, I, I wanted to uh, first thank you for everything that you do. And I know that you and, and Sajin love coffee uh, as you're writing grants at 2 or 3 in the morning. And I know you're up because you send me emails at 2 or 3 in the morning um, and, and, or text, uh, but you never wake me up, so no worries. So what I thought is I, I would uh, give you, a, have this gift for you, which is uh, directly from Southern Colombia, where my, uh, my, father, uh, my father's uh, parents, my grandparents, you, uh, had a, a big coffee plantation and a farm. And uh, my cousins now have resurrected the, 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 the plant. And, and, uh, and so this, is, this actually comes directly. Uh, it was roasted two weeks ago. 
in the in the volcanic area of southern Colombia, a department called Nariño, and I got a box of these of, of the coffee. Uh, this was for you, Emily, for you and Saging to enjoy it. Uh, and as you're writing the grants and bringing millions of dollars to Connecticut Children's, just think that it came a little bit from southern Colombia. So, Emily, without further ado, I'm going to ask you to introduce uh, Sunita for today's grand rounds, and uh, I'll leave you with Emily. And then Sunita, if you can come up, it will be great. Thank you. Hi, everyone. First one, thanks for the coffee. Um, I'm sure now I'll get my grants, hopefully, with that Colombian coffee. Um, but on to Sunitha's Grand Rounds. It's a real pleasure to introduce Sunitha Sura. As Juan said, she was a fellow here in endocrinology, one of the real stars, and has been faculty now for about four years. She's had a very long-standing interest in lipids, and as a fellow, in fact, she did bench research in lipid uh, laboratory of Dr. Annabelle Rodriguez, who's a world expert in lipids. So Sunipa has an incredible background. And ever since she became faculty, her dream has been to build a lipid clinic, a pediatric lipid clinic, which she saw come to fruition a few years ago. And it's been so wonderful to see her living her dream with one of the very few pediatric lipid clinics within an endocrine division in the entire country. So this is really an accomplishment. I look forward to hearing about your lipid insights today, Sunitha. Welcome. Thank you, Emily. Um, and my condolences to my dear friend, Jasmeet, uh, whom I've known, who's my uh, colleague uh, during fellowship, and to his family. Uh, so today I'm gonna talk about um, lipid insights, evaluation and management of hyperlipidemia in children's and, uh, children and adolescents. Um, I have no uh, disclosures. Uh, today, my objectives are to review current lipid uh, screening and management guidelines, assess high-risk pediatric patient uh, population, and define uh, treatment goals. Uh, also discuss familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, the evaluation and medical management. So cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in US. Uh, it accounted for nearly 860,000 deaths in the US in 2017. A CVD accounts for one out of every three deaths in the US. Approximately every 40 seconds, an American will have a heart attack. Nearly 122 million US adults are living with some form of CVD. The direct and indirect cost of CVD and stroke uh, was $351 billion uh, in 2014 to 2015. In the year 2020, between February and September, if you look at the number of deaths from heart disease, it was more than 400,000 uh, deaths, um, which was more than twice the number of deaths from COVID-19. So this is a very important issue that we need to address. Uh, and we know that atherosclerosis begins in childhood. There is compelling evidence to show this. There are two hallmark studies. One is the P-Day study, or the pathologic determinants of atherosclerosis in young. In this study, uh, more than 1,500 uh, persons who died from accidental causes like suicides or homicides uh, were studied where their right coronary artery, the raised lesions and fatty streaks in these individuals were um, uh, tested. And um, the percentage of the lesions were seen even as early as 15 years, the youngest in the cohort and it increased with age. 
Uh, in the Bogalusa heart study, it was noted that if the number of risk factors for heart disease was higher, then there was more coronary artery involvement, and also the intensity of the risk factors was important. Uh, now, uh, there is a non-invasive measure of subclinical atherosclerosis uh, by measuring the carotid intimal medial thickness, and this is elevated in pediatric patients who have high um, cholesterol levels from familial hypercholesterolemia, uh, pediatric patients with hypertension with type 1 diabetes. The risk factors that start in childhood, they track through adult life. And here I've listed the seven most um, common and high uh, risk factors associated with heart disease. Diabetes is um, one of them, which we see in our clinics. And it, um, the prevalence of diabetes is increasing in youth under uh, 20 years of age. Cholesterol, 20% of um, uh, patients, uh, pediatric patients between 6 and 19 were noted to have abnormal lipid levels. 2 to 4% of children have confirmed hypertension. And in the adult population, 46% of U.S. adults have hypertension. For smoking, 8% of high school students and 2% of middle school students reported smoking in the past 30 days. Tobacco use that starts in childhood, uh, in adolescence, persists into adulthood 50% of the time. Uh, we're doing better with the nutrition data. Uh, in certain aspects, the AHA Healthy Diet Score improved uh, due to increased consumption of um, whole grains and nuts, seeds, legumes, decreased consumption of sugary beverages. That is uh, making the diet score look better by 10% over the past 10 years. But we are not doing so good in terms of consumption of fruits, vegetables, uh, in terms of uh, saturated fat and processed meats. For obesity, uh, we know that 84% of those with BMI between the 95th to the 99th percentile as children were obese, as, uh, they stayed obese as adults, and all children with a BMI greater than 99th percentile were obese as adults. Um, for physical activity, only 26% of high school students met the recommendation of the uh, physical activity of 60 minutes per day. And, uh, those patterns that are established in childhood, they carry forward into adulthood. So for the pediatric lipid guidelines, over the years from 1992 to 2011, the recommendation has changed from targeted screening to universal screening. In targeted screening, a family history of um, premature heart disease uh, in males under 55 and females under 65, or if there's a family history of dyslipidemia, parents with total cholesterol greater than 240, or if the child has a risk condition, only then a lipid screen was done. This was the, uh, the era where targeted screening was the main focus. But things have changed since 2011. The recommendation has been to do universal screening for all children between the ages of 9 to 11 and 17 to 21 years. Because relying on family history alone misses 30 to 60% of children with hypercholesterolemia. And also with the increasing prevalence of obesity, it is key for us to detect these patients with dyslipidemia. We now know that dyslipidemia with the high triglycerides, low HDL, is also associated with cardiovascular disease. 
We also have emerging data to show that non-HDL cholesterol appears to be more predictive of persistent dyslipidemia than using total cholesterol, LDL, or HDL alone. So right now, the lipid screening guidelines, like I said, is between 9 to 11 and 17 to 21 years. Universal screening, where a screening non-fasting, non-HDL level can be uh, tested. This um, can be accurately measured in a non-fasting state, and it's practical in the clinic. Um, there are many clinics which have the analyzer, which quickly does a finger stick to measure a non-HDL cholesterol level. The total cholesterol and LDL cholesterol falls between um, falls uh, by 10 to 20 percent during puberty, which is why the, these age groups were chosen. Between birth and 12 months, uh, no lipid screening is recommended. And for the other age groups between 1 to 9 years and 12 to 16 years, um, targeted screening still uh, is recommended. So going into the lipids and lipoproteins, um, so lipids and uh, water don't mix. So uh, lipids need to travel in the blood circulation in the form of lipoproteins. A typical lipoprotein has uh, triglyceride and cholesterol esters in the core, and it has free cholesterol, phospholipids, and apolipoproteins on the uh, outer surface. Now, the subclass of uh, lipoproteins are divided into seven subclasses depending on the particle size and density. Uh, chylomicrons are the largest and followed by VLDL, IDL, LDL, lipoprotein little a, and HDL. When we measure non-HDL cholesterol, what we are looking for is the cholesterol um, amount in all the ApoB lipoproteins, which are the atherogenic lipoproteins, which include LDL, IDL, VLDL, and chylomicrons. The HDL, cholesterol component in the HDL is not included. So lipid and lipoprotein levels, so the normative data in the population obtained in the 1970s included more than 15,000 children, and NHANES data included more than 7,000 children where uh, this data uh, came out of those studies. And if you look at the high risk, um, the high levels of uh, cholesterol levels, the LDL cholesterol more than 130, the high represented greater than 95th percentile. And um, for non-HDL levels, it's greater than 145 milligrams per deciliter. Triglyceride levels is based on the age. So a child between zero and nine years any triglyceride greater than 100 is greater than the 95th percentile. Level greater than uh, 130 for a child between 10 and 19 years is considered high. For the HDL levels, uh, it's the 10th percentile. Low level is below the 10th percentile, which is under 40. For uh, young adults between 20 and 24 years of age, uh, the cutoffs are slightly different. And for LDL cholesterol, the cutoff is 160, and non-HDL cholesterol uh, greater than 190 is the threshold for intervention. So we'll go into the physiology of lipids and lipoproteins. So when you think of uh, lipid metabolism, uh, I'd like you to think of it in three pathways. The exogenous metabolism, the uh, endogenous lipoprotein pathway, and HDL and the reverse cholesterol transport. So the main uh, role of um, the lipid metabolism is to, from the exogenous pathway is to process the dietary lipids to be able to store them into, uh, for uh, energy utilization in muscle and fat. So this starts with fat absorption and chylomicron formation um, with the exogenous pathway. 
So fatty acids that are broken down from the triglycerides from the diet is absorbed passively across the enterocyte. Cholesterol is absorbed through uh, sterol transporters, the NPC1L1 transporter, which actually is a therapeutic target for, uh, for uh, lipid uh, therapy. Uh, for cholesterol inhibition, there is a medication that uh, inhibits cholesterol absorption by inhibiting the sterol transporter. Cholesterol then, along with a fatty acid, is esterified into cholesterol ester. Triglycerides, cholesterol ester, along with ApoB, form chylomicron, uh, chylomicrons which enter the lymph. There is an important protein that I'd like to highlight called the MTP or the microsomal transfer protein which uh, helps with this formation of the chylomicron. It helps with the transfer of the uh, cholesterol esters and triglycerides from endoplasmic reticulum to the, to the uh, cytoplasm. And defects in this MTP protein leads to a condition called A-beta-lipoproteinemia or hypobeta-lipoproteinemia. So in the exogenous pathway, the chylomicrons that enter the lymph enter into the circulation, and they acquire uh, proteins, apolipoproteins, from the HDL, uh, which includes APOC2 and APOE. There is an important enzyme uh, called the lipoprotein lipase, which plays a role in hydrolyzing these triglycerides and converting them into fatty acids so it gets stored into the muscle, heart, and adipose tissue. These uh, chylomicron remnants are then taken up by uh, LDL receptor. If there is a defect in APOE, which is uh, an important protein helping in binding the chylomicron remnant to the LDL receptor, there is a condition called familial dysbeta-lipoproteinemia and atherogenesis. With the endogenous lipoprotein pathway is mainly the VLDL production from the liver. So this is something that uh, is not dietary dependent. It is uh, made, uh, the uh, VLDL particles are made in the liver. Of course, diet, diet does play a role with high triglycerides, which can increase the endogenous pathway. VLDL then is metabolized to IDL and LDL. The process is pretty similar with the action of lipoprotein lipase. For patients who are obese, who um, have excess, uh, uh, who have insulin resistance, lipoprotein lipase does not work well and they cannot uh, hydrolyze their triglycerides into fatty acids and hence have very high levels of triglycerides. For the uh, HDL metabolism and the reverse cholesterol transport, so our body, our cells can make cholesterol, but there is not a good mechanism for cholesterol to uh, get metabolized at the cellular level. So there is a very important pathway called the reverse cholesterol transport where the cholesterol is removed from all these extrahepatic tissues and enter into the liver. So uh, cholesterol with the help of ABCA1 uh, will, along with the APOA1, forms a nascent HDL, which then uh, matures into a mature HDL. The mature HDL is taken up by the liver through a, a receptor called the SRB1 receptor, where the cholesterol is then extruded into the bile. Uh, there's also another way that HDL can exchange cholesterol esters and triglyceride with ApoB uh, Apo uh, atherogenic lipoproteins. And that's why in patients who are obese, you see that uh, when the triglyceride levels are high, their HDL cholesterol levels are low because of this uh, transfer of um, cholesterol esters and triglycerides between uh, the, the ApoB proteins and the HDL. 
So the lipid disorders, we divide those into primary lipid disorders and secondary lipid disorders. Primary lipid disorders, the main ones are familial hypercholesterolemia and familial combined hyperlipidemia that we typically see in the clinic. The phenotype with FH or familial hypercholesterolemia is very elevated LDL levels. And with familial combined hyperlipidemia, it's a mixed picture with elevated LDL levels and elevated triglyceride levels. It's usually brought on uh, by obesity and usually seen in adolescents and adults. For secondary dyslipidemia, if you have a child who presents to your clinic with high um, with dyslipidemia or high lipids, uh, always think about secondary causes. Uh, medication can do this, like steroids, Accutane. We see several children with high triglycerides on Accutane. Um, oral contraceptives, chemotherapy agents, antiretroviral agents. Endocrine causes like hypothyroidism, hypopituitarism. We have patients who present in the lipid clinic who were later diagnosed with hypothyroidism. We have a patient who was diagnosed with growth hormone deficiency. So this can be seen. So always look for those conditions. Of course, diabetes, PCOS are also endocrine conditions that can cause dyslipidemia. Nephrotic syndrome is an important cause for high LDL cholesterol levels. Um, HIV infection, hepatitis, uh, cholestasis, inflammatory conditions like SLE, GRA, uh, storage conditions like GSD, we see high uh, triglycerides with GSD, and other conditions like anorexia nervosa, uh, childhood cancer survivors, Klinefelter syndrome are also other causes. Under the risk factors, uh, always obtain a really good family history from these patients. When you ask for family history, you're asking for the parent, grandparent, aunts, uncles, males under 55 years of age and females under 65 years of age who've had an, a myocardial infarction, angina, a coronary artery bypass graft, stent, angioplasty, stroke, or sudden cardiac death. When we divide the risk factors, there are high-level and moderate-level risk factors. Under the high level, if you have a patient with, uh, who's obese with a BMI greater than 97th percentile, hypertension requiring drug therapy, current uh, cigarette smoker, diabetes, both type 1 and type 2, chronic kidney disease, post-orthotic um, uh, heart transplant, and Kawasaki disease with active current aneurysms. For the moderate level risk factors are those with a BMI between 95th to 97th percentile, hypertension not requiring drug therapy if there's a HDL less than 40, Kawasaki disease with regressed aneurysms, uh, again, inflammatory conditions like lupus, GRA, HIV infection, and nephrotic syndrome. So when we um, look at the lipid screening pathway, the expert panel guidelines, uh, again, recommend screening for all children 9 to 11 with a non, and 17 to 21 with a non-fasting, non-HDL cholesterol level. And when you look at that level, if you f see the level of non-HDL cholesterol greater than 145, greater than or equal to 145, or a HDL level less than 40, then these families need to be recommended to obtain a fasting lipid panel. The LDL cholesterol on the fasting lipid panel, if it's greater than or equal to 130, then they need to, then intervention is necessary. And if the triglyceride is greater than 100 in a child under 10 and greater than, one, greater than or equal to 130 in a child greater than 10 years old, then intervention is needed based on uh, targeting the triglyceride level. So this is a pathway um, 
that's directly from the guideline where, again, if first, if you have an LDL cholesterol greater than or equal to 130, to evaluate for secondary causes, uh, get a good family history and see if there's other risk factors or risk conditions. Start the child on a child to diet. A child to LDL diet, which I will go um, through in my future slides, is mainly best done by making a referral to a registered nutritionist, a dietitian, and they need to try the therapeutic lifestyle changes for six months before you, you know, think about further management. After six months, a repeat fasting lipid panel needs to be done, and based on the level, if the LDL cholesterol at that at the repeat level after six months is greater than or equal to 130 to 189, and this family has no family history, the child has no other risk factors or risk conditions, then it is okay to continue uh, the same therapeutic lifestyle changes and repeat an LDL uh, uh, fasting lipid uh, panel in six months. But if you have a child who's tried the dietary intervention for six months and the LDL level is still greater than um, 190, then medication management is recommended. For those between 160 to 189 and who have a family history or if they have one high risk factor or two or greater moderate risk factors, then medication therapy is recommended. For those between 130 to 159, the levels are lower, but if they have two high level risk factors or one high level with two or more moderate level risk factors, or if they have clinical uh, cardiovascular disease, then medication management is uh, recommended. On medication, your goal is to um, get the LDL level below 130. If the LDL cholesterol is still greater than or equal to 130, um, and if the triglycerides are maintained under 200, then a second medication uh, lipid-lowering agent is recommended. If a non-HDL level is greater than, greater than or equal to 145 after effective LDL cholesterol treatment, then the goal is to still work on getting the triglycerides down. For the triglyceride pathway, uh, again, you want to try lifestyle management. Most of the patients we see in our clinics are um, the elevated dyslipidemia is from obesity and triglycerides are uh, elevated. So lifestyle management is key and weight loss goals need to be uh, set for, these for the uh, patient. And uh, this needs to be managed for six months uh, before you repeat another fasting lipid panel. If the levels are greater than or equal to 500, the risk for pancreatitis increases and medical management is warranted. Uh, for those where the repeat FLP, uh, the triglyceride level is improved to target ranges where triglyceride is less than 100 or less than 130, depending on the age, then continue the same uh, lifestyle changes and reassess again in 12 months. But if the levels are between 100 and 200, again, continue lifestyle changes um, and also work on weight loss. At this point, also recommend um, increasing dietary fish content. For those between 200 to 499, again, a medication management with fish oil can be tried depending on the non-HDL level non-HDL levels, if it is greater than or equal to 145. Uh, statin or uh, other medication managements can be tried. So um, we have our uh, Connecticut Children's Referral Guidelines, which is accessible through our website under uh, medical professionals through the CLASP tools. 
under co-management co and uh, referral guidelines. It's under the endocrinology section. In this referral guideline, there is a pathway, which is uh, hopefully easy to use for, uh, for you in the clinic, where we comprised all the um, pathways into one in one page. We also have handouts for families uh, for, uh, that you can easily print out and give it to the families. The pathway looks like this. Uh, I know it's not easily, uh, you cannot read it, but just to show you that uh, all this information is all on one pathway. We did uh, make changes based on um, a referral, based on uh, medication, wherever medication management is recommended, then those are points where you can refer them to the lipid clinic here at Connecticut Children's. Now for the high risk patients, it's important to stratify these patients based on the risk and uh, set appropriate treatment goals. Uh, so the high risk patients are those with the homozygous FH, uh, type two diabetes, end stage renal disease, uh, type one diabetes, again, like we discussed, Kawasaki disease with aneurysm, solid organ transplant, vasculopathies, and childhood cancer survivors. The moderate risk patients are um, severe obesity, heterozygous FH, uh, confirmed hypertension, coarctation of iota, those with elevated lipoprotein little a, pre-dialysis uh, CKD patients, iotic stenosis, and childhood cancer survivors who had chest radiation therapy. The at-risk patients, which are the most common patients we see with the obesity, insulin resistance with comorbidities, uh, cardiac uh, conditions, Hyper, white coat hypertension, pulmonary hypertension, inflammatory conditions, and cardiotoxic chemotherapy. So for the treatment algorithm for this particular, the high-risk uh, population groups uh, is based on first stratifying them into these groups and then assessing the cardiovascular risk factors uh, and then uh, coming up with the treatment goals. For those with the high risk, the goal is to keep their uh, BMI down below 85th percentile, maintain their blood pressure under 120 over 70 or uh, below the 90th percentile for uh, age and sex. The LDL levels, the target should be under 100 in this group and A1C, hemoglobin A1C under 7%. For the moderate risk, again, the similar goals for uh, the blood pressure and for um, hemoglobin A1C but the LDL goal here is under 130, and the BMI goal is a 90th percentile. For the at-risk category, the same uh, BP and um, uh, hemoglobin A1C, but the LDL goal, again, the therapeutic intervention at 160, but the goal is to keep the LDL under 130 and BMI under 95th percentile. So uh, let's review a case. Uh, we have, uh, say you're in the clinic, you have a nine-year-old boy, healthy, with no significant past medical history. The mother tells you that father experienced a myocardial infarction at age 32. Uh, it was fortunately non-fatal. He was started on a high-potency statin and he had uh, stents placed. You obtain a non-fasting finger stick. Total cholesterol level uh, comes back as 274. So you ask this family to go uh, to obtain a fasting lipid profile. Uh, the total cholesterol comes back as 270. The LDL cholesterol is 220. Triglycerides are low at 25. And the HDL cholesterol is uh, 45. 
what is the most likely diagnosis? So this is most likely familial hypercholesterolemia. Familial hypercholesterolemia is a common uh, genetic condition. One in every 250 individuals have FH. Uh, but unfortunately, it's not uh, well recognized and uh, well uh, uh, diagnosed. There are 90% of patients who are undiagnosed. Uh, recently, we had the FH Awareness Day uh, on September 24th. So familial hypercholesterolemia is an autosomal dominant disorder. Homozygous forms are rare. They occur one in every 160,000 to 300,000 uh, individuals can have homozygous form. Here, the LDL levels are extremely elevated, more than 500 milligram per deciliter. Mm, I have not yet uh, seen a patient with homozygous FH. We have one family who's followed here at Hartford Hospital with Dr. Paul Thompson, who undergoes uh, lipid apheresis, who has homozygous FH. Um, who gets uh, lipid apheresis every two weeks. Uh, heterozygous FH is more common. The prevalence of heterozygous FH is about 30 million uh, worldwide. So if you look at the map on the right side, you can see that the founder population um, is French Canadians, uh, so Canada, South Africa, Tunisia, and um, Lebanon. They have very high incidence of uh, FH. So individuals, um, the, the prevalence uh, is about one in, is uh, more than one in 200. In the US, Brazil, UK, Germany, uh, the Netherlands, the incidence is between one in 250 to one in uh, 332 patients, uh, individuals. So heterozygous FH is uh, difficult on families because of the psychological impact uh, you tell the family that uh, you, you, the, your child has a condition, the child has no symptoms, and you're talking about long-term lifestyle changes and medications uh, for, um, to prevent a heart disease, uh, you know, 30, 30 year, 20, 30 years down the road. Uh, the autosomal dominant nature of the disease is also taxing. It runs in every uh, generation. So, this is a treatable condition, and early detection and early treatment is key. What is the pathophysiology in FH? Uh, so it is a genetic condition where there is a defect in the LDL receptor. So to the picture on your left, the normal uh, physiology is that LDL cholesterol, along with the ApoB, binds to the LDL receptor. It's endocytosed. Cholesterol is released and the LDL receptor is recycled back to the cell surface. When there is a defect in the LDL receptor due to an LDL receptor gene mutation, the LDL cannot bind to the receptor, and hence there's excess LDL circulating in the blood. If there is a defect in the ApoB, uh, ApoB lipoprotein, then the same thing that the uh, ApoB does not um, efficiently bind to the LDL receptor, hence there's elevated LDL cholesterol levels. There is another chaperone protein that plays a role in uh, LDL receptor metabolism called PCSK9. This is a chaperone protein that degrades the LDL receptor. So if there is a gain of mutation, um, gain of function mutation of PCSK9, then there's excess degradation of LDL receptor. And uh, so 
decreased levels of receptor means excessive LDL cholesterol in the circulation. Right now, the current standard is to diagnose these patients uh, by clinical, as a clinical diagnosis based on the phenotype, based on the family history, based on elevated LDL cholesterol levels. So you make a diagnosis of high probability of FH if the LDL cholesterol is greater than or equal to 190. Um, it, after two testing of uh, fasting lipid panels, after intervention with three months of diet. If the LDL cholesterol is greater than or equal to 160, uh, plus a family history of premature heart disease, or if you have a parent with a high total cholesterol level. So that's uh, not a genetic diagnosis, more made by a clinical diagnosis at this point. Um, so also, if you have a patient who has an LDL cholesterol greater than 130, but has a parent with a genetic diagnosis, then it's uh, possible this is suggestive of FH. Um, Currently, the recommendation is if there is a family history where a parent died from a premature coronary heart disease, then genetic testing in the child is recommended, and um, also to check a level of lipoprotein little a. So the, currently in the US, genetic testing is not standard of care. Uh, recently, there was a paper uh, published in 2018 in uh, JACC where there has been a drive to promote uh, genetic testing. The rationale for genetic testing is that it provides a definitive diagnosis. It provides prognostic and risk ratification information. It facilitates family-based cascade testing. It allows for precision during genetic counseling and has value to uh, the pediatric population. When a study was conducted in the Netherlands, 87% of parents from FH families uh, wanted their children to undergo genetic testing. We don't have that data in the US currently available. Um, on the right, you can see on the graph, it's a very interesting study that was uh, performed by Amit Khera uh, in, um, uh, I think he's in Texas, where they looked at um, the amount, the odds ratio for uh, cardiovascular disease based on those who had genetic testing versus those who did not have genetic testing. If there was a positive, uh, positive genetic test, the odds ratio for uh, having coronary heart disease was much higher than those who had a negative genetic test. Uh, so regardless of the LDL level. So if you have a patient who had an LDL cholesterol level greater than 190, and if their genetic test was positive for FH, they had a 17-fold increase in cardiovascular disease. Whereas a family who did not have uh, a positive genetic test had a five-fold increase. So there was a significant difference. So this helps with the prognosis of the condition and also for uh, management. Those patients who had genetic tests were more likely to initiate therapy uh, stay on therapy consistently and had long-term um, achievement of LDL goals. So the clinical features, again, we don't see this uh, commonly in the clinic because these uh, xanthomas are uh, usually a feature of homozygous FH, uh, rarely seen in heterozygous FH. Uh, but you can see tendon xanthomas on the dorsum of the hand, on the echelous tendon, um, on um, the subperiosteal region of the tibia, and also tuberous xanthomas on the elbow. 
Uh, these are patients who have xanthelasma. So I have uh, families where the child doesn't have this, but the mother has uh, xanthelasma. You can see the yellow plaques. And this is always, uh, when you see this, you always want to ask the family, are they testing, have they tested for their lipid uh, test? Because they might be having sky high levels of uh, cholesterol. So look for the xanthelasma. Look for corneal arcus. I have a family where the mom uh, showed me her uh, corn corneal arcus, and she was uh, hesitant to actually start her child on statin therapy. So we um, now have been, uh, you know, discussing and started the child now on a very small dose of statin to help reduce the uh, LDL cholesterol. Again, for nutritional management. Uh, so the child one diet is something that's recommended for the general population, where uh, we, we are doing this in our clinic all the time, um, uh, where we are uh, advising families not to have uh, flavored uh, sweetened beverages, uh, where we want to maintain the total fat uh, to 25 to 30% of the daily caloric intake. We want to keep the saturated fat under 10% of daily calories. Um, avoid trans fats, keep the cholesterol under 300. Um, again, healthy habits are important, and we are um, in an advantage where we are seeing these patients for uh, routine care and need to um, stress on uh, the, the you know, healthy habits like daily breakfast, limiting fast foods, eating meals as a family. Um, child, uh, the child two diet is where I would recommend that these patients see a registered dietitian. Uh, it's hard for families uh, to understand what it means to say 25 to 30% of uh, daily caloric intake needs to be fats. So it's uh, good for um, them to meet with a dietitian, have an exact uh, you know, uh, prescription with the plate and uh, what are the foods which account for this, uh, this percentage of fats. Uh, saturated fats, again, with the child too, is further reduced from 10% to 7%, and the cholesterol is further reduced to under 200. For the child too, triglyceride-lowering diet, it's the same recommendation as the LDL-lowering, but also, in addition, replace simple carbs, carbs with uh, complex carbs, avoid sweetened beverages, and increase dietary fish to increase the omega-3 fatty acid. So uh, there was a recent meta-analysis uh, looked at uh, those uh, looked at studies where medical nutrition therapy by a registered dietitian was provided, and what was shown is there was a lot of benefit in uh, families seeing a registered dietitian um, regularly. For it was cost-effective. Uh, there was a reduction in medication usage, um, a need for medication and also reduction in the LDL and triglyceride levels. So the impact of statins on cholesterol burden. Uh, over the years, uh, there has been more and more studies looking at the use of statins in children. Early initiation of statin uh, reduces the cumulative LDL cholesterol burden. So on the graph on your left, an uh, individual who has no familial hypercholesterolemia has a cumulative LDL cholesterol burden of 160 at the age of 55. A patient with familial hypercholesterolemia without treatment reaches that same cholesterol burden 
by 35 years of age. And if statins are started at age 18, then the same cholesterol burden is reached at 48 years of age. But further reduction, further uh, early initiation, starting statins at 10 years, they reach the same cholesterol burden at 53 years of age. So we are looking at uh, about a 20 year uh, cholesterol burden reduction by early initiation by uh, 10 years of age. However, the studies uh, on long-term safety, we know about immediate safety. We, um, we have data for 20 years into statin therapy, the efficacy and safety has been documented, but long-term um, safety is yet to be studied. For those patients, there was a study conducted with pravastatin uh, where 214 um, patients with FH were treated from childhood and they were compared to their parents who uh, were treated with statins as adults. And the event-free survival rate uh, for these patients between 8 and 18, so when they were seen 10 years down the road at the age of 30, none of those patients had um, any events with coronary heart disease. And when you look at their parents who started at uh, statins as adults, their event-free survival rate was 93%. So it's important when you start a patient on medication, it's important to monitor them closely because uh, these medications do have side effects like myopathy, muscle cramping, um, can elevate um, liver enzymes, AST and ALT can be elevated. So the recommendation currently is to obtain baseline AST, ALT, uh, creatinine kinase and a creatinine level before you start patients on uh, statins. Uh, it is important to monitor their growth. Um, there have been studies looking at cognitive function on uh, patients who started statins early. And so far, there has not been any deleterious effects uh, of statins on the cognitive function. But it is important to uh, monitor their puberty, growth, weight. Um, it is recommended to check a LDL uh, a fasting lipid panel along with an AST and ALT eight weeks into the therapy to see if uh, there is a response and to make sure the AST and ALT are not too elevated. So an abnormal elevation is if there is more than threefold increase in um, AST and ALT. Subsequently, a CK is obtained only if there are uh, muscle symptoms. The goal of the treatment is to reduce the LDL level by 50% or reduce uh, the level to under 130 milligrams per deciliter. Um, it's, all, it's also very important to counsel them on uh, pregnancy and contraception. So cholesterol is essential for fetal development. So statins are um, category X medication. So you want to uh, discuss uh, annually uh, with girls in childbearing age regarding um, uh, effects of statins on pregnancy. Uh, for uh, contraception, OCPs increase triglyceride levels and increase LDL cholesterol levels. So um, 
it's preferred to use a low dose OCP or IUDs, which are better in adult. Uh, uh, that's the study showing in adult women, but uh, those are uh, preferred uh, ways of uh, for contraception. High dose OCPs can raise the levels, but we do need more research, uh, especially in adolescents. We do need um, the uh, long-term uh, sort of uh, implication of OCPs in uh, FH. Uh, for statin intensity, we typically um, start with uh, a moderate intensity statin, like uh, torvastatin 10 milligrams or rosuvastatin 5 milligrams and um, pravastatin 20 milligrams, uh, which is a low intensity statin. They can be started um, and monitored for uh, the goals. There is a pharmacotherapy guide in our guidelines for pediatricians who would prefer to start uh, medication management and um, manage these patients as part of the co-management. So there are other medications um, also that are, um, can be used as second-line agents, which is ezetimibe, which is FDA-approved in children greater than 10 years. Uh, it inhibits the intestinal absorption of cholesterol and is a safe medication. Overall, uh, studies have shown it can raise the AST and ALT when given as a combination with a statin. It can also cause myalgias, myopathy, so need to watch for additive effect of both uh, statin and ezetimibe. Uh, bile acid binding resins like uh, cholestyramine, cholecivilamp, um, cholestipol uh, can also be used. There is a modest uh, uh, decrease in LDL cholesterol by 15%, but the side effects like unpalatability, uh, bloating, constipation. It is safe to use uh, uh, bile acid binding resins in uh, patients who are pregnant because uh, statins are contraindicated. But again, uh, the side effects uh, is what is the limiting factor. Now, there are newer medications in the adult uh, uh, patients that are being used uh, is the PCSK9 inhibitors. Like I had shown you previously in our slides that PCSK9 uh, uh, it is involved with LDL receptor degradation. So uh, monoclonal antibodies that inhibit the PCSK9 increase LDL receptor availability, and hence they can also um, reduce the LDL cholesterol levels. Uh, the effect has uh, been pretty good with 50% reduction in the LDL cholesterol levels. These are available as subcutaneous injections uh, once every two weeks to adult patients. Again, they are not first line and the safety and long-term effects still need to be monitored because these are newer medications. Then there are other uh, medications like lomitabide and uh, mipomersin. They are also used more uh, used in uh, homozygous FH patients for reduction of LDL levels as add-on uh, agents. Uh, for triglyceride lowering, fish oil, there has been um, studies on fish oil, which shows that one gram to four grams has been safe. Uh, there is uh, up to 30% reduction in triglycerides with uh, fish oil. Um, the prescription strength fish oil like Lovasa, Vasipa, they have higher levels of the omega-3 fatty acids than what's available in the over-the-counter fish oil. A phenofibrate is a PPAR agonist, which has also been shown to be efficacious to lower uh, triglycerides, but they do increase um, uh, LDL to a modest level. 
So this is the uh, new medication that I talked about, the PCSK9 inhibitors, uh, where um, it's, uh, it's a monoclonal antibody that binds to the uh, LDL receptor and helps and, uh, dis and inhibits the PCSK9. So there's increased LDL receptor availability on the cell surface. So several uh, supplements are uh, available in the market. Uh, this is always a challenge with uh, patients with FH uh, for families to commit to a long-term uh, therapy and they're always uh, you know, looking at or bringing you uh, data on, uh, on supplements uh, as a management. So Red Rise East has been uh, studied uh, in uh, adults and uh, not so much in children, but red uh, rice yeast. It has monocolons which have statin-like effect. Uh, but the problem is the amount of the monoclonals is not well regulated across the various brands that are available. And hence, um, you know, it's, it's hard to know uh, how much of an effect it's going to have with the LDL reduction. Uh, it also causes the same side effects like a statin, so you want to watch out for uh, myopathies and also for um, uh, elevation in the ASP and ALT. Garlic has not shown uh, to be um, uh, helpful in reducing the uh, uh, sort of LDL levels in some studies. Uh, then other uh, supplements like plant stanols or sterols about uh, Two grams of plant stanols or sterols can be added to the diet. It does have a modest reduction in the LDL, um, and that can be recommended. Fiber supplements are also another uh, important thing to focus. It is best for children to get their fiber through diet by um, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds. But if you have to add uh, fiber, uh, Children between two and 12 grams can have a six gram fiber and then greater than 12 years, a 12 gram fiber. So I just wanna to touch upon lipoprotein little a. There's been more and more research on this uh, protein, which is uh, very interesting in the sense that it has both the LDL particle and it has a plasminogen-like particle, which is the ApoE, ApoA, which is attached to this uh, LDL-like particle. It is important because it is shown to be a risk factor for uh, cardiovascular disease, for stroke, and for uh, venous thromboembolism. Lipoprotein little a testing is reasonable in youth less than 20 in uh, patients with uh, familial hypercholesterolemia. A family history of premature uh, coronary heart disease, it is uh, recommended to get a lipoprotein little a. Uh, if there is an unknown cause of ischemic stroke, or if there is a parent or a sibling with elevated lipoprotein little a, then uh, a level can be checked. This is a genetically determined protein. So once it is elevated, it is going to be elevated. Uh, currently, there is no medication in children to lower this level. Uh, there are some medications being studied uh, in um, adults, but uh, still not available. Uh, Currently, the standard of uh, care in terms of treatment for those with very elevated uh, lipoprotein little a is lipid apheresis, which is FDA approved. Now, also PCSK9 has uh, shown uh, uh, good results in terms of reducing the lipoprotein little a. Um, however, not, not to a great extent, uh, not as much as uh, LDL reduction. 
In children, if you have a patient with elevated lipoprotein little a, the goal is to keep the LDL cholesterol less than 110 and the non-HDL cholesterol less than 130 and to adopt a heart-healthy diet. So the future um, directions. So the field of lipidology has been uh, evolving. There's new medications that are constantly being studied and um, uh, tried. Uh, so there is a new uh, medication called Inclisiran, which is uh, uh, in the phase three clinical trial, which is a small interfering RNA that decreases hepatic synthesis of uh, PCSK9. So it's a subcutaneous injection twice a year. So it has a really long half-life, which uh, reduces LDL cholesterol by 50%. So we may see in the future um, people getting a shot of uh, uh, medication where once every six months to lower their cholesterol by 50%. Uh, but this is right now studied in addition to uh, taking statin. Uh, similar to getting a flu shot uh, once a year, so you might uh, see this more and more in the future. Um, also, there is uh, enzyme replacement therapy that has been uh, approved in uh, lysosomal acid lipase deficiency, uh, which is again a debilitating condition with uh, hepatic uh, liver disease with fatty steatosis and with uh, uh, cirrhosis. There are also medication in phase three clinical trials uh, where drugs are targeting the thyroid hormone receptor, uh, selecting uh, selective to uh, the beta receptor in the liver. And this reduces the LDL cholesterol by about uh, 20% uh, without having extra hepatic uh, manifestations from uh, elevated uh, thyroid hormone levels. Um, also, there is, uh, I uh, am not an expert in this, but uh, targeting lipid uh, rafts is also a potential therapy for uh, COVID-19. So lipid rafts are uh, the, uh, the cholesterol medium where proteins like ACE, uh, the ACE uh, uh, receptor is, uh, is present and it uh, sort of holds these receptors in place, the lipid rafts and uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 binds to uh, the ACE receptor in this lipid raft medium. So there are studies looking at um, sort of reducing that uh, cholesterol medium by either increasing um, reverse cholesterol transport by elevated uh, HDL levels or APOA levels, which will inhibit this binding and maybe potential therapy uh, for COVID-19 in the future. So in summary, universal lipid screening uh, is recommended currently between 9 to 11 years and 17 to 21 years. Early identification of risk factors and intervention reduces CVD, stratify uh, high-risk patients and focus on category-specific treatment goals. FH is a common genetic disorder and commonly undiagnosed. Greater lowering of LDL cholesterol and uh, TG with nutrition therapy by an RD. A statins initiated in childhood reduces risk of uh, cardiovascular disease in adulthood. Uh, some resources that I have here. There is a nice book called Adventures in Cholesterol. And uh, thank you to my whole endocrine team. Uh, special thanks to uh, Dr. Germain Lee, uh, Dr. Rubin, Annabel Rodriguez, my research mentor, our dietitians, Caitlin Ware and Pat Esposito, uh, James Antonelli from the CTU, and um, 
uh, Michelle Krivikas from the CLASP team. Thank you. Thank you uh, very, very much. That was truly, truly outstanding uh, expert presentation and uh, I've learned a lot. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it at least twice. And I'm so pleased that you're moving into infectious disease also. That's, that's something that I've, uh, we, we needed a, an additional attending in ID, so you're welcome. So starting with, from, from an infectious disease attending, Dr. Cohen Abo, although in, with his primary care hat on, he's uh, telling you, outstanding presentation, thanks. Uh, we see a lot of obese children in the clinic with very low HDL levels. Many children do not like to eat fish, and we cannot give them in, any wine. Could we use OTC fish oil? If so, how do you recommend to use it? Any practical ways to give it because it doesn't taste well about capsules? So, so that's a question from Dr. Cohen about OTC fish oil. That's a good question. So for OTC fish oil, you can start with one gram to start with and increase it to two grams and see the response in the levels. Uh, I know the taste and the burping sensation and the fishy uh, smell uh, and uh, taste is, uh, is a problem. So sometimes I recommend uh, that patients put the fish oil in the freezer. So once it uh, freezes and then they swallow it, it doesn't break down in the stomach. It breaks down much lower in the intestine. And so when they have that burp, they don't have that fishy taste or smell. So you can try that and see if that helps. Uh, for those patients, uh, we struggle sometimes with, for those who have G-tubes, because they come as capsules and we can't put the capsule in the G-tube. So uh, parents sometimes uh, split open the capsule and put in the fish oil directly into the G-tube. So different ways, but I think the freezing has helped. Some families came back to me and said it worked and they continued to do that. The capsules are also big and not easy to swallow. Um, so, so that's another uh, problem with it. Great, great question, great answer. Uh, another one is, uh, which is worse for a dyslipidemia? High saturated fats diets or a high carb diet? Uh, by observation research, obese children have the excess calories from carbs. Yeah, so um, again, the goal is to overall reduce the calories for obese children and weight loss is, uh, is the goal. Uh, for those who have the combined, like the uh, mixed picture, mixed hyperlipidemia with elevated uh, LDLs and elevated triglycerides, um, it's best to target both uh, to reduce the saturated fat content and also the uh, carb intake and the sweets. Um, so it is, uh, you sort of have to approach it in a, a way that you want to address both the fats as well as the carbs. I hope that answers the question. Uh, I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Germaine Lee. I think she had a question. So, Emily, we're going to put you on the, on the speaker. Go ahead, Emily. Okay. Um, thanks. Um, and Sunitha, when you were talking, I was thinking that we see a lot of patients in endocrine clinic who have muscle degenerative disorders, for example, like Duchenne's and have endocrine abnormalities. Um, and they often have lipid abnormalities due to prednisone, obesity, is there um, a contraindication in general to use statins because of their baseline elevations of CK and LFTs? And the same question with fatty liver. So, um, um, and just with fatty liver. Um, so again, you wanna weigh the risks to the benefits in these patients you want to look at the LDL level. If the LDL level is um, under 160 and um, 
if you can achieve goal by therapeutic lifestyle changes, that is the way to go and avoid statins because their baseline CK, their baseline ASD, ALT may be elevated. Adding a statin is going to uh, be a risk for these patients. There is no contraindication. Again, it's sort of balancing based on the levels. If you have a patient with an LDL very high above 200 and uh, they uh, need to have, uh, and they've tried the lifestyle changes and still have an elevated level, you can start a statin, but it needs to be at a very low um, dose. It is important. The dose curve is not linear with statins. So if you keep increasing or using higher doses, it's not that you will keep seeing an increase in benefit from the statin. So start small and monitor closely and um, monitor the CK levels. If they have physical symptoms of pain, again, it might be hard to uh, tease out in these patients, but if the family tells you that they are not comfortable, then you want to use other um, second-line agents like Zetia or uh, Ezetimibe to lower the cholesterol level. Thank you, Sunita. <laughs> Just one quick question, and then we must uh, uh, close. Uh, are the registered dietitians in, in the clinic available for referrals from community pediatricians, or can they only be accessed through the specialty clinics? No, they are available. So uh, pediatricians can make referrals directly to the registered dietitian. So if the lipid panel has been abnormal for the first time, I would recommend a six-month six uh, uh, trial of therapeutic lifestyle changes, and that can be done uh, by making referral to the registered dietitian uh, through Connecticut Children's. But if uh, you know that has been tried and then uh, the patient needs to be seen in a lipid clinic, they can come to a lipid clinic. In the lipid clinic, we do have a registered dietitian as part of the clinic. So if they do come to the clinic, they also get to see uh, the registered dietitian uh, as part of the visit. Okay, thank you. So we'll send out a link to how to make that appointment with a dietitian directly uh, in lieu of coming directly to the specialist. So, um, Emily, thank you, and Sunita, thank you very much. This is truly uh, outstanding, great work with, with the kids that need this so much. I really appreciate it. So for all of you, thank you for joining us this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day, and we'll see you on Friday and then Tuesday again. Take care. Bye-bye. Great job, Sunita. That was fantastic.